Star Wars has, since its earliest days, invented alien races and languages as part of creating a rich and textured universe as a backdrop to the adventures of its heroes and villains. But the ways it has done so has changed over the years. It's an evolution that has included problematic stereotyping and cultural misappropriation, as well as more sensitive handling in recent years. And we're going to talk about some of those issues today. You're listening to the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. Thanks for listening. I am Johnny Maynor, one of your co-hosts for today. I'm very pleased to be sharing hosting duties today with the wonderful Morgan. Hey, Morgan. Hello. It's excellent to be hosting with you as well. I'm very excited. This is um, a bit different than what I usually get to talk about, so excited to get into this more academic discussion. That. Yeah, we don't often do co-hosting on the podcast. Usually there are so many episodes in the pipeline across the various shows that appear on, on the feed that we sort of divide and conquer by assigning prep and hosting duties to one person. So this is good. This is new. Uh, so thanks for jumping into the cockpit today as, as the hand solo to my largely unintelligible Chewbacca. Um, <laughs> or do, 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 do you want to be Chewbacca? I feel like I feel more like Chewbacca in this scenario. How's your, how's your Wookiee Split impression? My hair. No. No, I don't have one. <laughs> well, we're we're going to be talking a bit today about uh, invented languages in Star Wars, among other things. Um, so let's introduce the first of, of our guests. Um, maybe we should ask him for a Wookiee impression. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so our first guest is Andrew Higgins. Uh, he was one of the many authors who contributed to that essays book that we talked about previously, um, the Star Wars Exploring a Galaxy Far, Far Away, and specifically um, Andrew's entry into this, Andrew's essay, Andrew's chapter, if you will, um, is about the languages in Star Wars. Uh, I would say the title, but I feel like I'm probably going to mess up <laughs> some of the pronunciations. So I will let Andy introduce himself and maybe tell us the title. So Brilliant. Well, th- well, thanks so much. It's great to be here. I love this podcast. And uh, yeah, I think I think the title is Utini, which of course is one of the first invented words you ever hear in the Star Wars universe. And then the last one, which I will completely, I will completely mess up, so I won't even try, is Mandalorian. It comes from the Mandalorian, and it means blood. The, the blood of the Mandalorians is strong, so I wanted to give that kind of spectrum. But funny enough, you should talk about Chewbacca because I think that's a really interesting place to start uh, with Star Wars language invention. I mean, and just I mean, just as a kind of a brief introduction. So I got into language invention mainly through my studies of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I am a Tolkienist. I've been studying Tolkien for many, many years, uh, and I started thinking about other invented languages and. I think for me, what I always try to do with these languages is take them very seriously, as you would in studying any language, basically. And so I looked at things like the amazing work that um, David Peterson did, for example, with Game of Thrones, when he created Dothraki and High Valerian for the HBO series. And then I started looking back and I looked at some of the other ones and the two worlds that I became very fascinated by and happened to be taking courses with the amazing Amy Sturgis, Dr. Amy Sturgis of Signum University and Starship Sofa and things like that, who is incredible, um, were Star Trek and Star Wars. 
and I took, I actually was lucky enough to take both of Amy's courses on Star Wars. And uh, I think it was after the second course, she started saying that, you know, they were thinking about writing this book about Star Trek and Star Wars, and would I be interested in doing something around language invention? And then I got an email saying, well, actually, it's going to be two separate books. And would you do a chapter on Star Trek and Star Wars? So I was originally going to do a lot more comparing of the two. And then I got, because of its two separate chapters, the opportunity to really explore the Star Wars languages. And so I started looking at how would these languages, you know, you, you mentioned Chewbacca, great example. So Star Wars language invention was not made by a language inventor. It was made by a sound designer named Ben Burt, who was hired by George Lucas uh, in Lucasfilm to do all the sounds for Star Wars. So he did the lightsaber. He did every sound you hear in the first six movies, basically, he did. And that also fell to sounds for the languages, for the creatures that were going to speak them. And so Lucas, for example, with Chewbacca, told Bert to go out and just film some bear sounds. Just go to the zoo and film a bear, basically. And so he did go to the zoo in L.A., and he, he actually filmed a baby bear um, named Pooh. And then he also went to San Francisco, and he heard these walruses who were on the, on the harbor. And they had just um, apparently taken all the water out of the, the walruses' pools. So the walruses were really upset, and they were making these really weird noises. So Bert recorded all of that, and he mixed all that together, and that's Chewbacca. So Chewbacca is a combination of bears and walruses. And that's where you get the, and, and so when it came time for the dialogue for Chewbacca, he mixed those different sounds together to create the Wookiee sound, basically. Now, we don't know what he's saying, of course. Han Solo does, you know, but we don't know what, what they're saying. That comes later. When they were filming in Tunisia, um, the, in, the, in the original for New Hope in Tatooine, they used donkeys to kind of have all the equipment come over in the desert. And the donkeys made this really weird brain noise. And Bert recorded that. And that became the sound of the sand people, the <laughs> sound, basically. So these were all the kinds of sounds. And he, he basically did three types of sounds. He did ones that came from animals. He did ones that came from uh, more machines and things like that, like R2D. And then the third category, and, and as you mentioned, this is the one that certainly is very problematic looking back on it is that Bert used the languages of indigenous peoples, like the Quechua and things like that. And he captured those people talking those sounds, basically. And from that, we get the Jawas and we get eventually the Ewoks in, in Return of the Jedi. So yeah. in the beginning, Star Wars languages was about sound. By hearing a certain type of sound, you associate it with an emotion or a feeling. So, you know, there's a whole thing called sound symbolism where sounds have inherent meanings to them. And that's one of the things that when you hear Chewbacca or you hear the Ewoks, even though you don't know exactly know what they're saying, you get a sense of it. You know when Chewbacca's upset, right? You know when he's, mm. you know, making when you laugh, yeah. it up, laugh it up, fuzzball, you know, all that. It's fascinating that, you know, some of and many of those characters that we see in Star Wars don't receive subtitles. Some, some, sometimes we get subtitles, yep. sometimes we don't. Um, and there are very, yeah, we have very different experiences, I think, with, with, with how 
some of that works in terms of Chewbacca, very expressive, Ewoks, very expressive. You know exactly what they're saying. Um, the sand people, mm. you know, record, you know, similar process to Chewbacca, recorded sounds cobbled together in a particular way, but they still remain very other and very alien and not, you know, you've, you don't understand their meaning. Yeah. It's just scary and different. Yeah, and it's something I also, one of the things I explore in the chapter two is when was the decision made to do the subtitling? So, for example, in the scene with Han Solo and Greedo, Greedo is speaking a language called Ubees, which later Princess Leia will also speak in Return of the Jedi when she has the bomb and everything. Which seems to be a remarkably a remarkably versatile language, or at least the few the few words that we have seem to be yeah. remarkably versatile. Well, Yoto, yes, Yoto, uh-huh. Yoto, Yoto. Y- Yoto seems to cover quite a lot of ground. Yes, David Peterson has a wonderful uh, introduction in his amazing book about language invention, where he talks about how that drove him crazy and made him want to invent languages because he couldn't understand yes. how one word could mean the same, you know, mean different things in the same, you know, thing. But UBs yeah. was interesting because the fans actually, that was one of the first ones. I mean, the, the relationship of fans with Star Wars is really interesting and very different from the Star Trek experience because Lucas was a lot more guarded than Roddenberry was about letting fans use his material you know, this was his story, basically. But you do have early fans kind of trying to interact more with the languages. And UBs was one of the first ones, basically. And now, in, in the current phase of Star Wars language invention, what I find really fascinating is something that began almost with lots of cultural misappropriation and things like that is now become a lot more open. And as a matter of fact, in The Mandalorian, we have this amazing sign language that was invented basically and it was invented by a hearing impaired actor who won an an oscar by the way and played the role in the mandalorian series so we've kind of come completely full circle and now there's a lot more in you know just you know um, acceptance and things like that so it's been a it's a really interesting history and it continues i definitely want to touch on on that um andrew but before we do, I want to say hello to our other guest, who the wonderful now Amy. I'm going to get your name wrong because I murdered it on the podcast when I spoke oh, to no. Amy, <laughs> Amy Sturgis, and uh, and Emily Strand. Is it Rikai? Rikai? It's Rikau. It's not Rikau. in any in any way. Uh, so uh-huh. yeah, no. It, I, I've heard every single version of it, and I embrace them all. Uh. <laughs> Fantastic. So we, we are now joined by the wonderful Amy Rickhow, um, who, who also has a chapter in this book, Star Wars Essays Exploring the Galaxy Far, Far Away by Emily Strand and Amy Sturgis. Um, Amy Rickhow, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your essay in the book, which is The Evolution of Twi'leks in the Star Wars Universe? Yes, no, uh, I, you know, I had known Amy and Emily for a while and they were very kind and asked me, you know, let me know that they were doing this essay. And I have always had a fascination with this, uh, the, you know, alien race of the Twi'leks and, you know, how they've changed over the years. I was always very, um, 
focused on Ula because she was one of the only women in the original Star Wars trilogy. Like I always wanted more people yeah. to know more about her. So that's a sad character, but you know, I was very like laser, you know, laser focused on her. Um, and, you know, I've done a lot of kind of, you know, fan writing and I've done some official writing now with some like reference books, but I was very excited to yeah. kind of get back to my film history roots um, I was a film history major at UC Santa Barbara, which is a program that's very, very much more about analysis and history and theory than production. Um, and so I was really excited just to kind of, you know, there have been so many Twi'leks and so many characters in so many productions and people have kind of taken them on in different ways. I was excited to kind of do a deep dive and see the history yeah. of that. Yeah, because it, it's interesting. There, there are probably a couple of alien species, alien races in the Star Wars universe who, who, who might be candidates for a study like this in, in terms of how the depiction has evolved over the years. Um, you know, as we're talking to Andrew about how the Tusken Raiders, for example, have, have developed and we have a much more culturally sensitive approach to them now in more, in more recent media. What, what is it about the Twi'leks that drew you to them? Was it just Ula as a, as a character or was it something else? I mean, I think it started with that, but also like, you know, I've done a lot, you know, as a woman in Star Wars, I'm always like looking at the women in Star Wars. And obviously like there weren't a lot of women in Star Wars to begin with. And now that is like gradually, you know, changed and it's definitely not how it is now. But, you know, I would say that like a lot of the Twi'leks that have been in some things, you know, like it seemed like, you know, it was just an excuse to have a scantily clad woman dancing around if you gave her some head tails, like, like it just, you know, and like there were so many kind of sexualized Twi'leks, you know, like there was, you know, the, the whole, you know, the Twi'leks who live on Ryloth were an, an enslaved people and seeing how that kind of was handled by different uh storytellers I thought was really really interesting and for me it was also interesting just because I think that Star Wars creators and Star Wars storytellers have taken this kind of alien that really could have just kind of remained like oh these poor sad Twi'lek ladies who are enslaved and all the Twi'lek men are mean and are like you know the enslavers you know it could have just been like this poor victimized planet but they really went beyond that and have now like some of the some of my very favorite characters in Star Wars storytelling right now are are Twi'leks. And so I think that that's a really nice and interesting progression. Yeah. Who, who's your favorite Twi'lek? I mean, I think it's got to be Hera. It's got to be Hera. Yeah. I think that I mean, yeah. it has to be like and I love I love her. I love her dynamic with her father in Star Wars Rebels. I like, you know, oh, yeah. oh, she's a character that had, a, you know, a romance with Kanan, but it never undercut her, her story. Like she was, you know, she was a mom and I'm a mom, but like that didn't define her. Like there's just, you know, there can never be too many Hera stories. <laughs> Yeah, agreed, agreed. I, I've enjoyed seeing her pop up in some of the the, the novels and other media um, in, in recent years, things like the Alphabet Squadron trilogy or indeed uh, the Squadron's yeah. video game. It's always, always lovely to see her popping up. Um, definitely need to see more of her and Jason at, at some point. Um, Morgan, you're dying to say something. I am dying to say something. I just wanted to uh, point out with Amy, I, I really loved how you addressed the intersectionality of the Twi'lek uh, people and specifically the female Twi'leks in your in your essay and what you were discussing right now because it's almost a uh, a double I don't want to say a double discriminatory thing but it it, it is in a way right because women were treated a certain way in Star Wars for traditionally um, and we had this as almost an even worse version of that treatment with Twi'leks. So I think 
but it's interesting because you know Darth Talon is a really interesting Twi'lek because like she's a, like someone who's in Legends and she was like always pretty much always like scantily clad. And I think that a lot of people are like, oh, like another scantily clad Twi'lek. Like, why? You know, like, can't we just, you know, have some clothes, you know, like. (laughs) Um, But she was also a very, very powerful character. She was a very popular character. She was a character designed by a woman. She's a character that a lot of women really, really love. And I think that the idea that like kind of she was kind of upending things because it's like not every, you know, you can be scantily clad. And if you are a woman and if you are a female Twi'lek and that's how you want to dress, like more power to you, you know, like, you know, like no one was telling her what to do. She was a very empowering character. Um, to me, one of the interesting progressions that went through um, was a very small character who started in the Clone Wars and she, I, I don't know how, to, how you would say her name, but it's like Sue Laquani and like she was a mom and like they were in a farm and I mean, if you look at her outfit in the Clone Wars, it is like completely ridiculous. It's like she's wearing some sort of like stripper outfit, but like there she is like running up on top of her house and like mm-hmm. shooting down a beast. Like she's a she's a really great badass kind of character, but she's wearing something that's really ridiculous. For it is ridiculous. She is. And I think that I wonder if it was in part just kind of like, well, this is what Twilix wear. Like, if you're a female Twi'lek, like, this is just kind of what you wear. And then when she popped up in The Bad Batch several years later, she was dressed just, like, much more appropriately, you know, as to, like, what she was doing. And it wasn't like she couldn't be sexy or she couldn't be, you know, feminine or she couldn't be, you know, like, you know, like, visually appealing or something like that. But it just wasn't kind of this, you know ridiculousness of like at any moment she's going to start doing some sort of sexy dance you know like <laughs> in, in her story i mean what what do you think what, what do we think is driving that sort of progression in the way that star wars deals with and, and depicts the other um you know whether that's the Tuscan Raiders um, and, sort of the, and, and the way the language invention has fed into that process or, mm. or something like the Twi'leks. Uh, Andrew, what do you think? Well, what's behind that? Yeah, I, th- I think certainly in the early days, too, they used that kind of otherness, that sense of the language sounding completely alien, you know, to create that difference. And then, funny enough, when they were originally thinking about Greedo, George Lucas wanted him to almost have like an insect buzzing language basically and then um ben bird came up with the idea of using this quetcha language and things like that and it becomes more Mm. but he really wanted to stress the otherness and i think for lucas certainly there was that sense that you know and this is true in language invention in general you know to make something sound really weird just make it sound completely different from any language we've ever heard before you know the Ursula Le Guin always jokes, joked about, you know, these inventive languages have lots of consonants, like lots of X's, so you can't pronounce them, basically. And so that creates that otherness, that different, you know, because it doesn't sound like the way we perceive language, basically. It can, but I guess it can be problematic when you're then borrowing from, say, something like Quechua. And... Yeah. It, you know, it's okay, it sounds different and alien to an Anglophone ear, but you're appropriating someone's language (laughs) yeah particularly when the portrayal is not particularly flattering it kind of enters some very very dicey territory doesn't it and also when you you know you bring someone in and you give her some vodka and you have her 
talk in that language, and they they called her. I, I explore this in the chapter. They called her Grandma Vodka. Basically, you know, they didn't yeah. even use her real name. I mean, yeah, it get, it gets, and that's why I'm so happy that in current Star Wars language invention and what Filoni's doing, you know, they've really kind of gone the other way with that, and you know, they, they like they did with the Mandalorian and with and with the um, sign language and everything. It's become a lot more engaging, definitely. And yeah. I, I, I don't pass judgment on Bird. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't necessarily think he knew what he was doing at the time. It's only when we look back on it now. But yeah, yeah. It, it is problematic. It's not the way to do language invention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I always, I always used to brag that like I am a product of the same physics program as Ben Bird. Uh, albeit 40 some years later. Um, and I was like, mm, maybe, it, I don't know if that's <laughs> quite the brag I thought it was. Yeah, <laughs> the, the tale of Granny Vodka was a new one to me, but yeah, yeah. certainly a bit, a bit of an eye opener. Yeah, no, yeah. um, Amy, what about you? What, what's sort of driving this sort of pr- progression in the way that Star Wars deals and Star Wars storytelling deals with the other? I think that Star Wars is really, really, there's so much more Star Wars content now than there ever has been. And there's so many people who are involved in the, the creation of the stories. Story group in Lucasfilm is huge. The number of like writers and directors has like greatly in, in, like increased. And I think that there are a lot of people who kind of grew up with Star Wars. And I think that sometimes they were like, you know, I love Star Wars, but like this thing's always kind of been bothering me. Like, can we put that, mm-hmm. turn that on our end? Could we make a progression? Can we, you know, make some changes? And I found some evidence that, you know, even back when you look at the Clone Wars, like some Star Wars creators were very, very cognizant that the the way that Twilix in this case were represented, like, wasn't that great. Like, and like, there was a lot more that they could do with this, you know, alien race that was always, it was very recognizable. And like, I think that, you know, I don't think that there are a lot of uh, the different aliens that a lot of kind of, you know, casual fans could name, but I think that a lot of people like they see a Twilix and they're like, oh, that's Star Wars. You know, it's it's something that is visually very, very like tied to Star Wars. But I think that, you know, when you talk about any kind of, you know, leaps and bounds of like how Star Wars is handling some sensitive subjects or just kind of overall, like, how are we going to go about doing stories? I think that the having more diverse people at Lucasfilm, hiring more diverse people, hiring more, you know, I one of the first Star Wars things I wrote was I did this project called 365 Star Wars Women where I focused on like every day, like a different woman who worked in Star Wars. And when I did that in 2018, there were no female directors. Like there were practically no female concept artists. There was, you know, one woman who had done, who had done composition for music, you know, like in, you know, the old eighties Ewok, you know, things like there were a lot of holes. There weren't a lot of writers. And like, even between 2018 and now, like, there's been a pretty radical shift and it's not to say that everything is perfect and that they can't do better. Like, of course they can. But I think that when you look at how few star Wars stories were being told even five years ago and what's going on right now. And I mean, especially if you look at something like star Wars visions and if you look at mm. something like High Republic stuff, mm. like it's just a game changer yeah. in the number of people that they're allowing to play in the Star Wars kind of, you know, playground. Yeah, yeah. And not just the number, but the variety of people, the diversity in the writer's room. Absolutely. Is so key. Yeah, 
Yeah, and we're seeing that in the books as well. I mean, Morgan, we're often talking on the podcast, obviously, about the books, it being the Star Wars Book Community podcast. But, you know, something like the High Republic mm. project, you know, such a diverse cast of a range of authors there and voices. Um, and in the, that comes through in the storytelling as well. You know, uh, the High Republic era is full of diversity. Um, you know, so so much so that you, know, you you pick up a book set later in the timeline now, and you're like, where did all the gay folks go? You know, they were. Yeah, where, where were you know, they? The, they were all here a minute ago. Um, but no, the, but the, the canon the, since the canon reboot, the books generally have been doing a much better job in, in terms of um, diversity. Um, I also feel things. like too that in a way we've grown up with these characters too, and you know, it, uh, they become just part of the cultural fabric there. Like when star Wars originally came out, they were alien because we had never seen these creatures before, but now Twi'leks, mm -hmm. you know, Ewok, you know, whatever. They're just, we've grown up with them. I mean, star Wars has been with me since 1977, you know, I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. when my mother referred to them as garbage can talking garbage can. Now, Amy, what was your star Wars journey? Like, I know you, we just heard from Andy that he's yeah. been with it from the beginning, from the inception. What was your journey? Yeah, no, I mean, one of my first memories that I can date is I remember seeing the the Alderaan get destroyed in the theater in 1977. I was four. I'll just date myself. Wow. Uh, but it's like, it is like this, you know, it's one of these like first memories. So I really can't remember Star Wars ever not being in my life. I mean, my parents like immediately bought my sister and I uh, Star Wars toys, you know, like, and they were always there and... Like it's it's something that I've grown up with. It's something that influenced my decision to study film. I worked in film preservation for a long time. It influenced that. It's obviously like a driving force of my writing right now. I'm in a you know b bizarre Star Wars reference mm -hmm. writing niche right now, which I'm enjoying while it lasts. Uh, so I mean, really, like it's you know it's funny how. Uh, a fictional universe can have such a kind of, you know, driving force throughout so much of my my life. Although I still don't think I take Star, Star Wars anywhere nearly as seriously as so many people who are angry on the internet about various Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, you, you think you're emotionally invested in something and then you go on the internet and realize there are people who are way more emotionally invested in this, uh, but maybe not in a healthy way. Um, not yeah, to, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I can compartmentalize what I yeah. like and what I don't like. Uh, and I, I wish more people could do that. <laughs> well, being part of the Tolkien world, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amy was talking there about, um, you know, how a fictional universe can have this sort of, you know, a very meaningful impact on, on, on your life. Um, Andrew, for, for you, I guess it was Tolkien, but, you know, you've also written about Star Trek, uh, yes. recently is sort of the, the sister publication to, to the book that we're, that we're talking about today um, is um, Star Trek essays exploring the final frontier. Frontier. Uh, you, you've got an essay in there. Uh, was, yeah. is, is, is Star Trek a fictional universe that you were particularly invested in before you came to it professionally? Yes, very much so. I grew up watching the original series, watched all the films. I mean, I've been in Star Trek for a while, but again, I took this wonderful course. So there are three, there are two TV shows that for me are my favorite. And then I'll watch again and again and again. One is the Star Trek world. And the other one is a wonderful Gothic soap opera called Dark Shadows. 
um, which Ooh. was in the city. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, mm -hmm. we just lost one of the cast members yesterday, a wonderful lady named Laura mm -hmm. Parker, who played the witch, Angelique. But it's just yeah. this amazing, and I wrote a chapter in a book about world building, about the world building of Dark Shadows, because it is a world. And, but Star Trek is the other one. And, and again, it was interesting to compare the way languages were invented. And also what I found really fascinating with Star Trek was the, the different versions of fan engagement. You had fans very early on, while the original series was just in its first season, inventing versions of the Vulcan language before even a mock yeah. time showed. So there was this very early fan, people like D Diane Duane and you know, these amazing authors, Theodore Surgeon, who got involved with writing languages for Star Trek. And that continued. And then, of course, you have Mark Orkrand, who created Klingon, which is not, which is one of those invented languages that's kind of grown out of the world and become its own auxiliary language. I mean, you have communities yeah. of people that you had someone raise their kid in Klingon, basically. Oh, wow. You know, so, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've i taken some Klingon modules on Duolingo on my phone. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've done Valerian, so. Oh, have you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my Duolingo journey started with actually trying to learn some um, Irish Gaelic because I oh, I, didn't, I didn't know I mean, any, and you know I'm I'm living back in my native Northern Ireland. I thought, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll I'll learn some Gaelic, but then I started seeing things on the app like High Valerian and um, yeah, right. and I, I saw, saw the Klingons. So I thought, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that. I know something already. I'll, I'll do that. Um, you know, even as a viewer, though, it always struck me how different the languages, how different the approach to alien languages seemed to be between Star Trek and Star Wars. You, you know, as a kid, you know, I, as a kid, I was picking up on the fact that, you know, Yoto, Yoto seems to cover an awful lot of ground, depending yes. on how you say it, uh, apparently, um, you know, whereas Klingon was much more developed, seemed to be to, to, to my well, ear, you know, seemed to be more developed, or, or was it, or was it still nonsense? But actually, kind of later it evolved. It was pretty much nonsense in the. So it's okay. never, it's mentioned as a language in the TV series. It's never spoken. You only have the names like Cracks and Korax and all these names. Mm. In Trouble with Tribbles, they mention the Klingon language for the Klingonese. It's called. It wasn't yeah. until the first movie in 1979 that. They decided to invent a version of Klingon, which was actually invented by James Doohan, who played Scotty. And huh. it was a combination of different languages, and then he threw in some stuff. And it was only when the Klingons became a focal point in the story about Spock and everything that they hired a linguist, Hard Bennett hired a linguist named Mark Orcrand, who had done some Vulcan for Star Trek to the... Um, uh, the Wrath of Khan, when they're in the elevator, when Spock and Kirstie Alley are speaking, they're speaking a kind of Vulcan. Um, and Mark Orkram was hired, and he invented Klingon, the Klingon we have today, and he still does. And of course, you know, they've translated Gilgamesh and Alice in Wonderland and Hamlet into Klingon, Tachbach, Tachbe, to be or not to be mm -hmm. in Klingon. Um, and and now it's become a language in its own right that people speak. They go to conferences called Keplas and they speak Klingon. So it, it's a, a really interesting one. The other two languages have, um, in the chapter I wrote, I, I looked at Vulcan and Romulan, and they have interesting histories. Again, combinations of stuff that the 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 canon stuff was doing, and then what fans were doing. And what's really interesting is there was a word that the a fan invented in Vulcan 
called Nivar, which means two aspects, like being human and mm. being Vulcan. And many, many years later, when they were doing discovery and they needed the name mm -hmm. for the planet, that was the, the planet of Vulcan and Romulan, they called it Nivar. Yeah. So I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've just finished. I think I've just finished my catch up on Discovery. Um, just, yeah, fascinating to know where, where that uh, where that came from. What's your favorite Star Trek series? My favorite Star Trek series. I've been rewatching Deep Space Nine, and I think for the yes. breadth of storytelling, that Deep Space Nine was very, very good. Yeah. Preach. Although I do like Picard. I, I did like, I, well, I thought the last season of Picard, I love Patrick Stewart. I think he's amazing. I can't wait to read his book. I thought the last season of, it, it almost felt like too nostalgic. It was like, you know, yeah. But I thought for the breadth of storytelling, Deep Space yeah. Nine, yeah. yeah. I, I like nostalgia. I like nostalgia. I'm, I'm in my 40s now. I'll, I'll take unhealthy <laughs> doses of nostalgia to get to get through, you know. What, yeah. about, what about you, Amy? Are you a Trekkie? So I don't know if I, I wouldn't really call myself a Trekkie, but I certainly do enjoy a lot of Star Trek things. Uh, it was something that like I, again, when I was growing up, saw a lot of it, but much more casually wasn't kind of like very focused on it nearly yeah. as much as Star Wars. But I've definitely, uh, I've been trying to kind of play catch up over the last, like I had watched like The Next Generation, like when that came out, but like a lot, like Deep Space Nine, I had never watched, but it was one of my... Uh, it was one of my COVID benches in 2020, actually. Like, I was like, you know, when you have all this, you know, I got some time. Uh, like, I need an escape. And so that was one of my, and I absolutely, I mean, several people had recommended it to me and were like, you have to see Deep Space Nine. Like, if you were whatsoever interested in Star Trek, and I really, really, really loved it. Mm, yeah. Binging is the way to do Deep Space Nine at, the, at this stage, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially with for some sure. of the arcs sure. and everything. And I got to say, Lower Decks. Lower Decks, if you like Star Trek, Lower Decks is amazing. It's very self-referential. I have seen, I'm not caught up on the most recent season, but I have watched that and I think it's hilarious. And I feel like I'm not even getting a lot of like the deeper cuts, but I still yeah. think it's hilarious. I struggle to understand who the audience for Lower Decks is. I watch it as someone who's quite well-versed in the lore. Thinking, I think you have to is, be. Is there a mass audience for this? Because my goodness. I think, it, I think it's for Star Trek fans because there's too yeah. many... You know, and then they had the crossover this year with uh, Strange New Worlds, which was really funny. But mm -hmm. yeah, there's so many references, so many in references in Lower Decks that I think you have yeah. to be a yeah. Star Trek fan, basically. So you're listening to the Star Trek Book Community podcast. Um, of course you're not. <laughs> of course. Get, 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 getting back to Star Wars. Um, Andy, you, you are obviously a, a big Tolkien scholar as, as well. Um, you know, George Lucas and other creators of Lucasfilm in more recent years have sort of channeled um, yes. uh, Tolkien over the years. I mean, you know, most notably, I guess, in something like Willow and you know, a Luke Lucasfilm mm. project in the 1980s. You know, are, are you seeing, as a Tolkien scholar, are you seeing much Tolkien influence in, in the output story-wise, be oh, that yes. the old stuff or, or whatever? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Lucas was very uh, influenced by Tolkien. As a matter of fact, there's a very early draft of the original script where he quotes from the good morning scene with Bilbo and Gandalf. You know, what do you mean a good morning? Is it a good morning to be a good, you know, all that kind of stuff. But more recently, I mean, Dave Filoni clearly is. And I mean, he, he sketches little Tolkien things, doesn't he? But when you looked, mm -hmm. I mean, when I saw Ashoka, I mean, 
you know, come on, you know, Gandalf the White, Ashoka, you know, she's wearing a, a white thing. And then that last scene, I mean, I don't want to spoil, but the Mortis yeah. rock yeah. was the, it was the pillars of the Argonoth. I mean, it was, you know, it's like, so yeah, I, I think, and that's great. I mean, I think the, the way he's using Tolkien is interesting because he's not just copying, he's incorporating it into his own vision and stuff like that, which I think is great. Yeah, I, I've enjoyed that about Filoni's work, going back to the Clone Wars, you know, mm. introducing some of these slightly more fantastical bits, you know, reminding us that Star Wars isn't science fiction, it's yeah. science fantasy. And he loves know? things like um, holocrons and, you know, and it's yeah. interesting, and he, he loves the Sith, there's a Sith writing system that was invented, and all, on all those holocrons, you always see the Sith writing system and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I like that because that's languages. But, yeah, he definitely, you know, he uses Tolkien in an interesting way. Um, yeah. yeah. I like all of the Narnia references in Filoni's yes. as well. Um, and I like that he doesn't even shy away from it. Like, he just, like, names episodes where it's, like, Name the like, it's like very obvious. But I think that that's yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I giggled when I saw that uh, flash up on my screen that that episode title recently. Um, yeah, very on the nose. Yeah. It, it, it was a line the witch in the wardrobe. It was something the witch in the warlord. I can't warlord. Exactly yeah. The yeah. Jedi. The, yeah. the, the, the Jedi. The witch in the warlord was it? I mean, I think the other area. I mean, as this is a book podcast, that I'm always looking for is. Where in the books do so? For example, Karen Travis was amazing because she, when she was doing those um, uh, Rebel One Hundred One books, invented a version of the Mandalorian language, basically. Um, yeah, which wasn't then used in the Clone Wars because, and there was a bit of falling out with her. But in the back yeah. of one of them, yeah, it's interesting. So I'm I'm always looking in the books to see where there's examples of language and how it's being used and how it's being incorporated and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I I, I wasn't a Star Wars fan online um, when that was when, when that was going on. Um, whatever sort of drama went on with Karen Travis deciding to part company. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it was no, I don't know if it was just that the you know the, the, the canon as, as it was progressing in the Clone Wars wasn't really paying too much heed to what she'd done or or if it was something else. But there is a in in one of those episodes in the Clone Wars, we do hear some Mandalorian spoken. Mm-hmm. But yes. I think if I remember if I remember correctly from a, an interview Dave Filoni gave around the time, I think they took inspiration from Cornish, possibly for that. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, either that's something I came up with in a fever dream, or it's something that happened. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, so yeah. Very well, be either. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll definitely explore that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Amy, while we've got you, I I I don't know if you if you're able to, but um, we'd love to talk to you about Star Wars timelines, which Mm. also came out this year. Um, For for anyone listening who missed it, timelines is this superb canon reference book spanning all of known galactic history, um, you know, from the sparse information we've got in canon about the dawn of the Jedi era uh, to the rise and fall of the First Order. You know, and and speaking as someone, I mean, I maintain my own spreadsheet of the Star Wars timeline with separate columns for each media type. Um, So this this book is right up my alley. Um, 
Can you tell us anything about what that was like putting that book together? Sure. Well, I mean, what was interesting about that book is that everyone thought like, how does this book not exist? And then when we started putting together the book, it became very obvious why this book had not existed before is it was just like, there was so much information and so much of it, like, you know, there were a lot of strongly held opinions. There were a lot of, you know, like, of course, this is what happens here. But then when you're like looking at it, because what I loved about the book is it was the films, the TV shows, short stories in Star Wars Insider, short comics that, you know, appeared anywhere, like everything that was considered canon was kind of fair game to incorporate in this book. And I really love that it gave comic stories and stories in video games the same weight in many cases as yeah. television kind of, you know, things. And I did the reign of the empire. Um, I love like star Wars, like, like doom and despair. And like, you know, I like the dark stuff where there's just like the glimmer of hope to me. That's like kind of like the core of star Wars is when people are finding hope yeah. when there's no reason to, but they're still doing it. That's kind of like the in overall inspiring thing about for me for star Wars. So I was very excited to to do that. And part of it was because I really do love Star Wars Rebels. And I was very excited to kind of chart the course of that series. Um, and, you know, like it had the world between worlds in there, which is just funny when you're doing a timelines mm -hmm. book, uh, you know. And so we had to kind of like sort out, you know, yeah. all of all of that. Like, how exactly is that, you know, going to work out? But it was really, really, for me, delightful to kind of look at the stories in a different way and try to kind of, you know, there's some weird stuff in Star Wars Rebels 4, like, and trying to kind of explain what's going on in, like, short little bites of text is, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the editors at DK, sometimes they have people intentionally look at it who aren't huge Star Wars fans just to make sure that it makes sense. And sometimes I'd get notes that would be yeah. like, so like they're on a big wolf, you know, like what's going on? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you had to be there, you know, like, uh, but it was, yeah, it was yeah. a very interesting yeah. challenge because of that. Uh, and you are not the only person yeah. who has their own spreadsheet with their own timeline. What? I was terrified. Yeah. I was terrified of the reaction of this book with a small subset of timeline nerds and i'm one of them so i don't mean that in a bad way <laughs> but i was like uh oh like what's gonna happen and it was everyone has just been very very kind and very very like you know i i've gotten to know a lot of these people a lot better now and that's been really really delightful i was a little bit worried that people again like the whole issue of like taking it a bit too seriously would just I was afraid I was gonna have to leave social media, you know, <laughs> like when uh -huh. the book came out, because you'd be like, "How dare you put that thing there?" You know, like you know, what it, what are you you're ruining my life. Yeah, uh, well, I yeah. Speaking from personal experience, I um I stopped getting over invested in when things when I thought things should fall in the timeline when um when they finally released the the official list of the Clone Wars episodes in chronological order, because. At, at that point, I had already sorted it all out in my own head. I had my own list and I knew exactly why it made sense. Uh, and I still can't quite get my head around why the official order is what it is. Um, but I've made my peace with it and I've, I've, I've resolved to, to not be over-invested and to just accept it. Yeah, I think everyone's got those things where you're like, well, I'm not really sure if that's true, but like, okay. Like sometimes there yeah. would be things where I would be like, it's not really obvious where this goes and no one was really sure. And so it kind of became a game of like, is there a reason it can't go here? <laughs> like, is there, you know, like yeah. it yeah. has to go yeah. somewhere. 
Somewhere. Like, yeah. and, you know, and the book does, of course, use some like estimated, you know, entries, you know, and sometimes it's kind of hilarious, like how very estimated it is. But, you know, I think that, you know, what you don't want yeah. is you don't want a reference book to box in future, future storytellers. You don't want, like, exactly. you want it to be yeah. complimentary, but to not box people in and to not like close off doors that people, I mean, and honestly, even if it did, like they'd probably override it. And I, I'm totally fine with that. Like, you know, I'm not using, you can't be beholden to, you know, something in a reference book. If like, there's like some giant, great, you know, big idea. Yeah. I mean, historically speaking, the reference books are kind of in the firing line all the time, aren't they? You know, it's it's not it hasn't been uncommon for little bits and pieces of even where a reference book has established something as a new bit of canon that actually down the line, maybe it, you know, it it gets revised um, one way or another. Well, and there are a lot of reference books that kind of uh, their first version came out before Disney purchased Lucasfilm. And then yeah. they continually get revised. And, you yes. know, it's kind of interesting. Like, I, I own a lot of versions of the same kind of, like, books. And, you know, certain some some things kind of stick around. And then sometimes I think people were like, wait a minute. I don't know about that. You know, let's yank that out. Like, you know, and yeah. so things just kind of, you know, it's like a history book. Like, it depends on who's writing it is just yeah. what you get. But, I mean, you yeah. know, speaking as someone who obsesses about these details and has the spreadsheets, you know, that's kind of part of the fun of it for me is you know figuring out where it fits and sort of and and and, and watching it evolve and, and knowing that something has shifted from you know the position as expressed in one book written in 1970 you know seven and but down the line it's become a different thing that's just part of the story it's it, it's fascinating yeah i love listening to johnny and some of the other hosts discuss the uh canon nature and where things fit in timeline when we're talking about various books and the the novels if you will in the star wars universe um because johnny definitely has some strongly held opinions on occasion (laughs) yeah absolutely i I need to send you my spreadsheet morgan i do need to hear your spreadsheet that would be helpful because i just kind of sit there and stare at the ceiling whenever you guys do that (laughs) i'm like that's fun Look, before we before we wrap up, um, this is of course the Star Wars book community podcast. So we'd be remiss not to talk uh, to you about the about Star Wars fiction in print. Um, Amy and Andrew, do you read the books and comics? And if so, is there anything from recent years, or indeed from the forty plus years of Star Wars publishing that you hold dear to your hearts? Um, Andrew, what about you first? Yeah, I, I try to keep up with it. Um, the last thing I read, which I thought was brilliant, was The Return of the Jedi from a Certain Point of View volume, which mm-hmm. had some amazing stories in it. Um, some incredible stuff about Darth Vader. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just really moving chapters. And, the, and also my favorite one was the one about the Sarlacc and how it basically the Sarlacc is just laying there, minding its own business, and then they start throwing bodies at it. And he's like, I can't digest these bodies. I don't know why they keep doing this. I, I thought that was very clever. Yeah, I've only recently started that one. I, I'm kind of doing it as bedtime reading, just sort Same. of reading one a night. But um, 
Yeah, I haven't got. But, but, I've been looking forward to. I know, and I knew from the previous installments in the series that, of course, they'll do a Starlack. Sorry, a Sarlacc one. Uh, so I've been looking forward to that one um, yeah, for a number of funny. years now. So, certainly, ever since I read the last volume, and we got that whole story about sort of the, the lonely life of a space slug. Um, oh yeah, it's the slug with you, mouth you know. open. I've just got my mouth open. Yeah, but uh-huh. I, I do. Uh, but it is. It is a lot to keep. So I mean, I would love. I think I'm just going to have to block out a bunch of time to do the High Republic at some point. I read the first one, the one about the, the destruction of the star thing and everything, but I need to yeah. read the rest of them. I mean, yeah. not to add not to add to your burden there, but I would strongly recommend that you do try to read the the young adult and middle grade novels that go along with that as well, because okay, the yeah. storytelling is really told and carried by by all of the books and not just okay. unfortunately for, for for folk who do want to just stay on the adult novel world um yeah. you know you, you may have to dive a little bit deeper to, to get the full to get the full thing but i'm i adore we, we adore the high republic on this show we do adore the high republic on the show i'm glad you brought it up because it's it's almost like an ongoing trend of mentioning the high <laughs> republic every time oh, you good. have an episode <laughs> great well yeah i will definitely do that that's on my list now, Amy, how about you? Any any particular favorites in Star Wars fiction? So I do I do try I kind of I feel like because of the writing kind of projects that I've been doing, like it's like I feel like it's my job to keep up with all the Star Wars stuff, which is kind of funny. But uh, because of the work that I've been doing, I get access to a lot of the books and comics early, uh, and I get. depending on what the jobs I have depends on what kind of comics I get. And so I'm overall behind on a lot of comics, but then I've yet seen some comics that haven't been published. And so I've been like spoiled Uh for like, you know, like that. I get spoiled for a lot of books and comics and I don't mind at all uh, because it's all very fun, but like, I'm not going to complain about that. (laughs) But, um, but it is like the way I kind of, you know, I was always reading the books and the and like the comics i was kind of late kind of coming on to comics um as a reader like i didn't read them all i didn't read them very much in like the 80s and 90s but like i i really become a, a comics lover and i was really really excited about the high republic i was like totally engaged with the high republic and then i was lucky enough to get hired to write um the there's a character encyclopedia coming out in december mm-hmm. and i was one of the writers for that and so i was given a lot of access i can't talk about the high republic publicly because i have no idea like what's come out and what hasn't and what is common <laughs> knowledge and what isn't so you i'm like, like just shut up. Mm-hmm. just just don't even talk about it um <laughs> but i really really love <laughs> Writing that book was extremely helpful because if you have, you know, as some of you have read The High Republic, there are quite a few characters. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, in so like, and it can be very, very intimidating. And now that they've done, you know, phase one, phase two had, for the most part, an entirely new set of characters because it was 150 years before phase one. Because it kind of did, it did, like, High Republic is set up similarly to the films, where it's like you've got the original trilogy, you go back in time with the prequels, and then you jump forward um, although the, the phase three of the High Republic is just jumping kind of like right after phase one. But um, I really love that. I love seeing so many Jedi and so many different kinds of Jedi. It's not like it's just Qui-Gon who's like, hey, cancel. I think you're a little bit crazy here. Like there's so many like there's so many Jedi who just kind of have their own way of relating to the force 
and their own ideas of like what a Jedi is going to be and what a Jedi should do. Like, I love just seeing so many Jedi, not in some sort of like, you know, Clone Wars kind of just set up where everyone's kind of, you know, doomed, (laughs) but, but like more like, you know, seeing them kind of in the prime, like, how does this work? Like, how do Jedi temples work? How does hyperspace work? How, you know, like, how does all of this kind of happen? Because I think there's a little bit of a, like a Star Trekky kind of a thing too, where they're really kind of, they're going out into worlds and they're making contact yeah. and they're like, you know, we're the Republic, join the Republic. Like, we're the Jedi, we're your friends, you know, like, yeah. we're, you know, like there's kind of an interesting aspect of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, for me, reading the the Light of the Jedi, that first novel that kickstarted the whole thing, it, it just seemed it felt like the first time that we were really reading about the, the Republic and the Jedi in good times. Yeah. You know, well, it really resonates with what Obi Wan says when he said, "You know, for a thousand generations, the Jedi were guardians of truth and justice in the old Republic." You know, you get that real sense of yeah. depth. You know that yes, that really did exist. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I fear that as, sort of as the High Republic wears on, and, I, and I'm, I'm loving all of it, I, I guess we're we're kind of heading into sort of uh, if, if, if that's sort of an era of sort of call it benevolent colonial expansion into the galaxy, we're kind of entering the sort of decline, or we're going to see it decline as we kind of get towards the end of that era. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, it does seem like there's so many directions that this can go, um, and it's really exciting to see what's going to come up next. Yeah, can't wait. That said, I think it may be time for us to wrap up. Um, It's been really excellent talking with both of our guests today about the the entries that they provided for Star Wars Essays Exploring a Galaxy Far, Far Away through Vernon Press. Um, Andy, Andrew, if you will, um, it's been lovely having you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. No, thank you. Um, And would you mind telling the people who are listening where you can be found Um, online? Yeah, you can find me on, well, X, what used to be Twitter, uh, at A.S.T. Higgins. I also have a, a blog called Wotan's Elvish Musings. Um, And of course, the book is out by Vernon Press. uh, So you can go on the Vernon Press website to order the book. Um, Yeah, but Twitter is, uh, I'm on there a lot, doing lots of stuff about Tolkien and Star Wars, Star Trek, Dark Shadows. So yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Andrew. And Amy, what about you? Where can folk find you online? And for me, you can, uh, so just at Amy Rickow, my name is where you can find me on most social media platforms. I've kind of like tried to, you know, make a claim for like 12 of them. And I'm not sure which ones I'm going to use, you know, in the future. But uh, for the most part, that's where you can find me. Uh, and I have a, a newsletter, which I've been ignoring, but I do want to get back to it uh, on Substack. But uh, but mostly but mostly you can find me on social media. Uh, and I hope to, you know, chat High Republic with a lot of people in a very, you know, safe environment and safe and, you know, limited way when that book comes out later this year. Oh, we'd definitely love to have you back on the show to chat about that. Now, that's a project that I'm really, really excited about. And I cannot wait to uh, get to chat more High Republic with you. It's, it's such an exciting adventure. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I feel like I, you know, was able to use that book, you know, as a reader, like, it's, you know, I'm biased because I wrote, wrote, you know, a lot of it. But, you know, I think it is really, really helpful. I mean, there just are so many characters. So, so many. I think it'll be a great moment for all High Republic fans to, you know, flip through it and be like, aha, 
yeah, that's, you know, that's who you are. <laughs> I, for one, will definitely be one of those readers who will be referring to that book constantly once it comes oh, out. Me too. <laughs> now, Johnny, I know that we probably already know where to find you, but, you know, let's humor the viewers or the listeners right now and uh, let them know where you can be found online. Yeah, you can normally find me rambling about Star Wars on Instagram or threads as at Journals of the Wills. That's Journals with an S and Wills with an H. Uh, and much less frequently on Twitter as at Journals Wills. Great. Um, and I am not a Force user, primarily on Instagram. Maybe a little bit on threads. I don't know. Maybe sometimes on TikTok. Uh, but with increasing regularity, I am here on the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. And I think that wraps us up, right, Johnny? Yeah, I think so. This has been fun. Um, all that remains is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Andrew Higgins. Goodbye. May the force be with you. And a goodbye from Amy Rickhoy. Goodbye, everyone. And a goodbye from Morgan. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Star Wars Book Community Podcast. (laughs) 